Hey, it's Larry. Uh, Thanks for listening. Happy New Year. Real quick, before we get into this episode, I had such an amazing, eye-opening, life-changing experience at the World Parkinson Congress in Kyoto that I want others to have that opportunity, too. So Becca Miller and I and 24 of our PD community friends have launched a year-long WPC Travel Grant Fundraiser. We're each doing a two-week Facebook fundraiser. Mine's underway right now because my birthday's January 9th. All the money raised will be used to help offset travel costs so more people with young-onset Parkinson's can attend the next WPC in Barcelona in 2022. You can search out details on the When Life Gives You Parkinson's Facebook page or donate directly to the WPC website. Go to wpc2022.org slash yopdfund. If you or your business would like to supply matching funds... Hey, good on you. Email me at parkinsonspot at curiouscast.ca. And now, on with the show. Hi, I'm Larry Gifford. I have Parkinson's disease. And I'm going to the World Parkinson Congress. And many of you have reached out to say you're going too, which is terrific. From the folks at the Parkinson Society of British Columbia, my new friends at the Michael J. Fox Foundation, to many of the people you've heard here, including Johnny Aitchison, David Sangster, Jill Ames Carson, Tim Haig, and many others. If you're going, please let me know. If you don't know by now, this is WPC 2019, the official podcast for the 5th World Parkinson Congress. The event is being held June 4th through 7th, 2019 in Kyoto, Japan. This podcast is created in collaboration with the World Parkinson Coalition and my other podcast, When Life Gives You Parkinson's. Each episode, we'll explore some of the topics that'll be addressed and chat with speakers lined up for this year's WPC. One issue that impacts many of us with Parkinson's and may be the least talked about is sex. Gila Bronner is founder and was director of the sex therapy service at Sheba Medical Center in Israel for 15 years. She's also a sex therapist at the Movement Disorders Institute at that hospital, dealing with assessment, treatment of sexual problems among patients and partners, and assisting the staff in coping with the sexual issues of their patients. She joins us now via Skype. Hi, Gila. Hi. Gila, how did you become an expert in dealing with sexual dysfunction with Parkinson's patients? Well, actually, um, I was the head of a sexual health promotion program at the Tel Aviv Medical Center. And when I started working there, I was doing an assessment of the needs of various departments. And in the neurology, in the neurological department of the hospital, I found that um, patients needed help. Patients, I mean patients with neurological disorders. And we started to build a counseling assessment and counseling program specific for neurology, meaning people with Parkinson, people with multiple sclerosis, epilepsy, and post-stroke patients. Now, in the Parkinson, I was invited by Professor Giladi and by Professor Korchin, and they asked me to start doing a research. Do you remember what that first research focus was? Yeah, the first one was to, to look at the sexual problems of people with Parkinson, to look at those who stopped having any sexual activity, and to compare men with Parkinson with women with, with Parkinson. And actually, at the first research, we had 75 patients, about half men and half women with Parkinson's disease. And what did you discover? We discovered that the frequency of sexual problems is really high. 
about three quarters of the population had some sexual problem. And for many of them, it was a case to stop having sexual activity because nobody was talking about this. So, so Gila, is it because of the Parkinson's or is, the, is age also a, a contribution to that? Yeah, you are right. Actually, what we have is two parallel phenomenons. One is the aging, and the other one is the additional challenges of Parkinson and the treatment for Parkinson. But when you compare it to the usual aging population at the same age, you see that it's, it, it is, has an increase of about 30 to 50 percent in comparison to people who do not have Parkinson's disease. Wow. At the same age, matching age. So you do have the additional burden of the disease and the treatments for the disease. This is a topic that is hard for people to talk about, and uh, you've made a living about it. How, how, do you, how, how do you begin these conversations? Even, let's just start with your spouse. How do you begin that conversation with your spouse? What I say is, look, according to my very rich experience for many years, I found that people with Parkinson have a lot of questions about their sexuality and about their intimate life, meaning not only having sex, but touching, hugging, caressing. And if you have any problem, just open it and we'll find if we can find any solution. So what do I do usually? And this is the message that I would, I would like to give through this interview is I would like to give patients and partner permission to discuss this topic because generally we don't have this permission to, to share and to ask. Now, I, I don't have solutions for every problem, but in Parkinson also when we look at motor and non-motor symptoms, we don't have solutions for everything, but we can at least discuss it, understand it, and see if we can be creative enough and enable people to have some aspect of their sexuality. When I talk about sexuality, is much more than just the erotic experience of having intercourse, getting aroused, having an erection, lubrication, orgasm. It's much more than that. The sexuality has the physical aspect of touching, a relaxing touch, of being close together, feeling security, feeling that someone embraced me, someone is here with me. So the physical aspect is very important. Now, the physical aspect can be non-erotic and can be erotic. But the problem is that when the erotic part gets problematic, many people stop touching. Many people stop being close together. And this is the main problem. I would like people not to stop. Even if they have some problems, motor problems, physical problems, emotional problems, we don't stop it. So that's why we have to talk about it. So this is something that I tell people. Let's start talking. Now, if someone wants to talk with his partner, actually what I have to, to ask is to ask, how do they talk about sensitive issues? And we'll try to use the to empower this part mm -hmm. and to help, let's say that I sit in front of a person with Parkinson, 
I'll try to help him and give some sentences, loving sentences, caring sentences, so that the partner wouldn't think that the only idea that this person has is how to have another intercourse, how to have another orgasm, how to have another penetration, another erection, but that he's talking about something which is really important in our life, and this is sexuality in its broadened, holistic way of looking, the non-erotic and the erotic part. Uh, two things come to my mind as somebody who has Parkinson's. Uh, number one, it's a very lonely disease, and, and, and the, the, I think the longer you have it, the more lonely you feel, even though you may have a great support system. It, it's, it's very isolating. Uh, and yeah. so, and, and the, the other thing is, my spouse isn't doing a lot of caregiving right now, uh, but she sees herself in that role and, 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 and as a care partner. As my symptoms progress, I, I don't want to lose her as a wife and have her as a full-time care partner. I think that could be hard for people to differentiate between am, am, am I your nurse or am I your wife? Yeah, this is one this is one of the main problems and we have to find a way to separate between the roles. And that's why one of the tips that I give to people with Parkinson and to care partners, I can talk to them separately or together and what I say, let's not forget the care partner. For example, one of the things when I look at couple, at the couple, and actually the couple intimacy model, we need to have couple time. Now, what do I, what do I uh, mean by couple time? It's a time where a couple, let's say that this is a heterosexual couple, so we'll have a man and a woman, and they can go for a walk watch a movie, sit on a cup of coffee and discuss something, just lie in bed, uh, hugging one another and watching a, a movie on TV or whatever. This is couple time. But not less important is a personal time. Now, Parkinson sometimes stick together, the couple, in such a way that none of them have a personal time. So this is very important. Why? Because the personal time, meaning the time where each part of the, of the couple is active differently in a different activity, maybe far away from one another. One can go and listen to a lecture and the other one goes to the gym. One can meet friends. The other one can uh, go and have a, um, a, some treatment, let's say a massage or reflexology. It doesn't matter what. But this separation enables being together. You know, it's like an accordion. You know, the accordion, this musical instrument, if you open it very much and you don't move, you don't have sound. <laughs> if you close it together and you don't move it, you don't have a sound. When do you have sounds? Nice music. When you open it and close it, open it and close it. And a couple has to be like this. So one of the things, especially when people with Parkinson need more care, is to bring a carer into the house or to, to give some other arrangement so that the partner can go out and do something, shopping, walking, taking a bath, for 20 minutes with nobody disturbing them. It doesn't matter what. We need to have this separation in order to have this time together. Are there specific things that happen because of PD or its treatments? Yeah, we do have. One of them is the desire. The other one is the arousal. 
The next one is the orgasm. Actually, if we look at all these sexual response phases, all of them are affected by Parkinson. For example, desire, we have increased desire and decreased desire. For example, if a patient with Parkinson is very anxious, nervous, depressed about the situation, if the partner is, is overwhelmed with burden or really looks with a lot of fear to the future, anxiety, depression, fear, negative thoughts, decreased desire. On the other hand, people with Parkinson receive um, treatments of dopamine with uh, the levodopa, dopamine agonist, it doesn't matter which kind of treatment, which increase the dopamine in order to restore the motor and non-motor symptoms. But dopamine helps to increase desire, so sometimes we have increased desire. And sometimes the increased desire is great. And in a few cases, actually it's something about 4 or 5% of the cases, we have increased desire which is not controlled. We call it hypersexuality or compulsive sexual desire. So we do have problems with desire. Then for arousal, what we need for the man is erection. Now, the Parkinson itself, sometimes the motor problems cause changes in erection. For example, let's imagine a couple hugging one another. And let's say that they are in good mood and the atmosphere is great. And they both get aroused, meaning vasocongestion of blood and swelling in the genital area for the woman and the man. The woman might have lubrication or just good feeling with swelling and the man might have erection. Let's say that now the man wants to change a position because they are used to have sex in the man on top position. So the man tries to move to the man on top position but due to the Parkinson. And due to motor problems, he has to concentrate so much on changing a position that he is losing his erection and he will not able to be able to resume it. So just motor problems can affect the erectile function. Well, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, everything we do is so effortful and you have to put so much attention on what you're trying to do uh, that trying to move out of position, I can see how that would take focus off everything else, for sure. Of course. And the solutions, actually, what do we say? We say, let's divide the concentration. Let's not do two tasks together, how you do it in sex, very easily. One option is planning the position in advance in a way that we don't have to move much. The other option says, why do we have to have intercourse when we can have outer course? Out of course, we are caressing the genital area of one another 
and for our brain and for our soul, it is very pleasuring. Our body doesn't mind what kind of pleasuring activity we give the, the body. Only, you know, we have this part of criticizing brain part uh, that, that, that these criticisms say this is not sex, but it's not true. Outer course and intercourse are very common ways of having sex. So we can hug one another and touch one another without doing too much motor movement. Now, let's say that touching your partner while you try to concentrate on your arousal is too much. So let's divide also this. And why don't do, we do this on turns? Let's say that the man uh, assembles all his concentration and focus on her pleasure. And then the woman assembles all her concentration on his pleasure. Why not do it? We do it when we do so many other activities in other rooms of the house. Only bedroom has to act according to other rules. It's very silly. So these are the things that we have to talk about because this is what people do. Only we don't talk about it. So we don't know that this is so common. So what I'm saying that the Parkinson itself affects, it affects the desire, it affects the arousal, being aroused, being able, and also it affects the orgasm. Why? Because sometimes for orgasm we need to be concentrated. And concentration problems we have sometimes in Parkinson. Sometimes it's not the, the concentration but it's the depression or actually the antidepressant medication, which helps us to feel better. But since they relax our mind, they relax our soul, they also relax the process of sexual activity. So it takes more time, more effort to orgasm. And sometimes the difficulty is so big that we can't orgasm. So at least we have to know. And then we can think of solution or say, okay, now we have different pleasure and the pleasure will be without orgasm. You know, it's like going to a party or going to a restaurant and just eating one portion without ending with a good cake or ice cream. We don't need always <laughs> to have every portion. It's just a change because what I'm trying to do when I look as a sexologist, I want people to have pleasure. So with it being so prevalent, <laughs> uh, affecting three-fourths of the people that you study with Parkinson's, uh, why, why is my neurologist talking to me about this at all? Well, neurologists as well as nurses, as well as other health professionals, are not taught about it. Even today, when sex is spoken so much around on the internet, on TV, on TV shows, in films, they don't teach them. Now, what do they don't teach them? First, the association between various aspects of a disease and sexuality. For example, in Parkinson, we have a lot of non-motor symptoms, we have motor symptoms, and we have medications, and we have other treatments. Nobody talks about it. Then you have to teach the neurologist how to open a discussion with your patient in a way, in a way that you feel good, as a neurologist, and that the patient or the partner feel good. Nobody gives them instruction. And if they do, you know, physicians have a lot of training in hospitals. And they have um, seniors who teach them all the time. And they analyze cases in order to learn more. But nobody asks, did you ask the person about his sexual life? 
How did you ask? What was the answer? What would you answer later? What can you check? Can you refer this patient maybe to a urologist, maybe to a gynecologist, maybe to a couple therapist, maybe to a sex therapist? Nobody talks about it. At the World Parkinson Congress, you, you are going to address who people should talk to about their sexual issues and how. But what can people expect when they show up to your session? We'll have a specific session on sexuality where three sexologists will talk. And what we'll try to cover is the various sexual problems that are associated with Parkinson disease, the various treatments communication issues, how do you communicate and how do you keep intimacy and also how do you open this issue with your doctor or with your healthcare provider. What are you looking forward to most in in your trip to the World Parkinson Congress in Kyoto? I'm waiting very much to the round table, which I love because we sit in a round table in a kind of intimate group, like 10 people are sitting around, and we can really hear questions of people from all over the world and cope with them during this talk. The other session that I am expecting is my session with caregivers, because I think that we treat, all the time we treat people with Parkinson, and we forget the caregivers. We need the caregivers. We need to think of their health, of their physical and mental health, of their needs, even for the needs of intimacy, like when they have done so much during the day, maybe a good foot massage or shoulder massage or just making them a cup of tea when they come home. I mean, we have to care for them because they have such an important uh, and efficient job in caring for this uh, disease. So I'm looking forward to talking to the care partners. And Gila, I'm looking forward to meeting you and can't wait to get there and uh, say hi in person. <laughs> Me too. Uh, and, and thanks for all the work you're doing of, 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 of empowering all of us to talk about our sexual dysfunctions with our partners and with our neurologists and with our GPs. Hopefully we all get a little bit more uh, pleasure out of life uh, because of you. <laughs> That's right. Each episode of WPC 2019, I'm going to provide a Kyoto life hack, a tip, culture insight, etiquette advice, language lessons. It's an extra dosage travel guide to get us all better prepared for our trek in June. Now, none of us want to offend anyone or be embarrassed, so James Heron, the executive director of the Japanese-Canadian Cultural Center, has agreed to join us each episode to teach us a word or a phrase and provide some insight into the culture that we can expect. James, let's get started with the word of the week. It's, it's not a word, it is a phrase, um, and it's quite useful. It's uh, the Japanese that you will need to introduce yourself. Oh, great. Uh, which will go along uh, nicely with uh, some of the vocabulary we learned when we were doing the, uh, the business card exchange. But what you need to say when you meet someone for the first time is, Hajime mashite. Hajime mashite. Mm-hmm. Hajime mashite. And then, Watashi wa Larry Des. Watashi wa Larry Des? Des. So Watashi means I. Okay. And wa means it's a a particle that sort of marks the the subject of a sentence. 
then the name. So I am Larry. And the des is a, sort of a, kind of the equivalent to the verb to be. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. So hajime mashite watashi wa Larry des. Hajime mashite watashi wa Larry des. Yeah. All right. I'll, I'll, I'll have to work on that. Now, what I wanted to talk about today sort of ties to money. Oh, okay. Yeah. We're going to be using a lot of it, I'm sure. Yes, yes. And of course, everyone knows that the currency in Japan is the yen. And one yen is approximately, very approximately a penny. Okay. And uh, the coins come in uh, 1, 5, 10, 50, 100, and 500 yen coins. Mm-hmm. And there are notes of 1,000. There's a very rare 2,000 yen note, which you probably won't see. Then 5,000 and 10,000. Okay. Is is it a mostly cash-based society or is it paperless? It is really a cash society. Um, It is changing. But uh, because Japan is quite a safe country, um, you know, people are – people will carry – large amounts of cash with them and uh you know speaking as someone who has lost a wallet in tokyo um usually if you leave your wallet in the middle of the road it'll be returned to you with all the cash intact oh okay so it's not a not a promise but it tends to be the experience that most people have well we're going to hold you accountable for that <laughs> okay <laughs> Um, but I say it's largely a cash economy. But um, and 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 the best ways to uh, to get cash in Japan is um, actually a lot of Japanese uh, large banks um, don't take Canadian debit cards. Mm. But a lot of the Seven Eleven convenience stores have a cash machine called the Seven Bank, and uh, there are about twelve thousand of them in Japan. And you can you can get cash from your Canadian accounts through that. That's what I, I always do. I heard that this weekend. I was talking to a guy that just spent about a month in Japan. He goes, yeah, just go to the 7-Eleven. You can get cash, and they've got a great lunch there, too, that's really cheap. The, when, when, yeah, convenience stores in Japan really put they put the convenience in convenience stores, and um, you can do you can do anything there. You can send packages, you can pay bills, um, and again, you can get uh, you can get cash and uh, using twenty three different languages on the machine. It wasn't always the experience, but a lot more Japanese places now, department stores, etc., will take foreign uh, credit cards. So that's um, that's not a problem. But again, there's you know there's still There'll still be times where you'll need cash, so it's it's definitely worth having some in your pocket. Um, also in Japan, uh, people are using these prepaid credit cards now. A couple of famous ones are Suica cards or Pasmo cards. You can usually buy them at train stations. And essentially, you know, you charge them with 5,000 or 10,000 yen, whatever you decide, and you can use them on, uh, on trains, um, which is very convenient because you just simply... You know, you, you, you insert your card on the way into the station and then on the way out, and it calculates the cost of your trip rather than you, rather than you having to buy a ticket for that exact amount. You can also use them at um, convenience stores or coffee shops for paying for just about anything. And you can use them in taxis as well. Okay, well, that's, that's a great tip. Yes. And uh, speaking of taxis, um, one thing to remember when you get in a Japanese taxi is don't open the door. The doors will be opened automatically, mechanically by the uh, by the driver. And uh, so, when you're getting in and getting out, wait for the driver to uh, to open the door for you. Okay. One other thing around taxis, and I, I actually it goes across the board in Japan, is that there's no tipping. 
No tipping in Japan. Across the board, yeah. Um, if you do try to tip someone, they'll usually uh, look at you in a kind of an embarrassed way, but they will definitely um, refuse to tip. They take uh, great pride in, in what they do, and they don't need to be paid extra uh, to do the job. Thanks, James. We'll be sure to post these words, pronunciations, and cultural insights on the show notes. One last note, it is April, which is Parkinson's Awareness Month. I just want to thank you for doing everything that you are doing to raise awareness of this disease. Every little bit counts, and you're doing a lot. Thank you. From Curious Cast and the World Parkinson Coalition, this is WPC 2019. Special thanks to Gila Bronner and James Heron, who joined us today. Visit WPC2019.org to learn about the upcoming 5th World Parkinson Congress, a global Parkinson's event that opens its doors to all members of the Parkinson's community, including folks like me living with the disease. Follow WPC on Twitter at World PD Congress. If you'd like to help spread the word about this podcast, be sure to rate, review, and subscribe for free. Search for WPC 2019 and When Life Gives You Parkinson's. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and everywhere you get your streaming audio. You can also listen at CuriousCast.ca and WPC2019.org. Connect with me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter by looking up at Parkinson's Pod or email Pod at CuriousCast.ca. WPC 2019 is written and produced by me, Larry Gifford, and John O'Dowd. Dila Velazquez is our story producer and sound design by Rob Johnston. I look forward to seeing you in Kyoto. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.